will and to do of his good pleasure. Father, we thank you for even the good news, the testimony just a moment ago of your grace, of your mercy, of your power at work in the hearts and lives of your people. We thank you for our sister and for as well the thanks that she is offering unto you as, as is rightfully do unto you. And we pray as well, Lord, that we might have as grateful hearts and thankful hearts for the good news and the answered prayer. We are grateful and we rejoice. And we thank you, Lord, for this body of Christ that you've made us a part of. And as we open the Word of God to begin to examine your truth this morning, we ask that your Spirit may use the Word of God in every one of our hearts and lives, that you are, we are aware that you are sanctifying us, you are conforming us to the image of your Son, and you do so through the Word of God. As our, as our Lord prayed in the garden, or in the uh, high priestly prayer, that not only may your will be done, but as well, Father, that you would sanctify us through your truth, for your word is truth. And so, Father, as we approach the word of God this morning, we pray that we might have hearts that are receptive to receive your word, and may our hearts and our minds be submitted unto you, that you would continue this work of molding us and making us into the image of Christ, conforming us to his image as you desire and have purpose to do. And we thank you, Father, even as we will consider this morning from your word, that this is a work that you have predetermined to do. It's a work that you have promised to be faithful to complete and that none of this hinges on us, but it's on your word and on the faithfulness of your purpose and plan unfolding throughout time in our lives. And so we rejoice in that. I pray that we might be mindful of this truth as we would live out this great salvation. There is none beside you. You are holy. You are set apart. And there's none other as you are. There's none to compare to who you are. And yet you have shown us grace and kindness. You have smiled in our direction through Jesus Christ. And we rejoice that we have received of your goodness. So may we do, may we approach your word this morning. May we receive your word with, these, with grateful hearts unto you, acknowledging who you are and as well being mindful of who we are and what you've accomplished despite who we are. And for that we are eternally thankful and grateful. So may we demonstrate, exhibit such gratefulness and thankfulness, not only in these moments which we've met, but as well as we live each day of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Last week I explained to you as we began this portion of this study, we've looked previously in the first four verses of this chapter and how that, of course, Paul is, is exhorting the church at Philippi that they be like-minded and again, this term like-minded, when you look throughout Scripture, you'll find it consistently to be in relation to having the same mind in regard to our own humility and in, in preferring others before ourselves. That is the consistent context of like-mindedness as it's mentioned in the epistles. And so we find that Paul speaks of being like-minded, not just meaning agreeing on the same things, but he's saying to the church at Philippi that you are to each and every one individually Humble yourselves and prefer others before yourselves. Then in verses 5 through 11, Paul goes on to uh, expound upon that truth as he mentions Christ who is the supreme example. And again, anytime I say that, I'm so cautious because many people look at Jesus as though he's only this great example. No, he is Lord. He is our Redeemer. He is our Savior. He's the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. But yet, he also is the supreme and superior example in all things that pertain to life and godliness and holiness. And so, Christ 
is that? And Paul in the Carmen Christi in verses 5 through 11, again, the praise to Christ or him unto Christ. Paul uh, mentions how that Jesus, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he demonstrates or, or explains the, the superior example of humility that our Lord displayed in humbling himself and becoming uh, humble before God, the scripture says in Deuteronomy. And so Christ took upon him the very wrath of the Father. It was exhausted upon his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, on our behalf, those who know Christ. So again, there is no wrath reserved for me because God has exhausted that wrath upon his Son as one who's trusted and rested in the, the sufficiency of God's provision in Jesus Christ. And so we rejoice in that truth that we are... We are justified, we are redeemed, we are set free, delivered from the sin, the condemnation of sin, the curse of, of the wrath, uh, uh, curse of sin and the wrath of God. And so we saw as well that his exaltation, the exaltation of Christ in verses 5 through 11 is superior. And again, we need to remember the emphasis, let me just mention to remind you in case you're not aware of this, that in the epistles you will find usually within the first chapter is a thesis statement that is made regarding the entire purpose of the epistle. The, it just so happens that Paul's thesis statement in Philippians, this epistle to the church at Philippi, is in chapter 1 verse 10, in which Paul says that his desire for the church at Philippi was they approve those things that are excellent. And the word excellent means superior. And so Paul again demonstrates this, just a brief reminder and review. Paul demonstrates this uh, theme throughout the letter as he mentions, uh, for instance, that in chapter 3 verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Paul as well speaks about in this letter how that he counts all those things he once considered gaining now counts but loss for the excellency, for the superiority of knowing Jesus Christ. Not only, again, knowing him at the moment of salvation, but a continual growth and development and maturity and knowing Christ in uncovering who Jesus truly is as the scriptures reveal him to be. And so Paul says all things other than knowing Jesus are inferior to knowing Jesus. To know Christ is superior to everything else. There is nothing that compares. And so Paul is making that point throughout this Epistle, And then he comes to verses 12 and 13, following the hymn to Christ. And again we read, he says, Wherefore, my beloved. So for this reason, for this cause, here Jesus set the supreme example. He humbled himself supremely. His humility is beyond any other comparison of any other person's humility. And he is exalted above, any, above all other exaltation and that God hath given him a name which is above every name. Now remember again, just to briefly remind you, that the exaltation of Jesus Christ is not talking about his person. It's talking about his glorified body because Jesus and God, the Father, they are equally God together and it has been like that eternally. And so we understand that when it says he was exalted, it's in direct relation to his supreme humility in taking on the form of a servant, in taking on the flesh of mankind, and now others in the flesh, glorified body, that we every knee would bow every time we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord unto the glory of God the Father. And so we, we recognize that this exaltation of Christ is not about his person. It's about having been in, in the incarnation of Jesus, coming in the flesh. Now he humbled himself in that manner. And hence again, Paul in Corinthians states that the head of, a, uh, the, head of the woman is the man, the head of man is Christ, the head of Christ is God. 
That's not saying that there again is some hierarchy within the uh, the Godhead, but rather Christ being the Messiah, the anointed one in the flesh, he was under submission to God the Father. And that's the, the, the context here. And so we recognize that verses 12 and 13, he says, Wherefore, because of all of these things, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so Paul couples together within verses 12 and 13, we began to see this last week, he couples together the responsibility of believers to submit to the truth of God while embracing the purpose of the redemptive work of God with the faithfulness of God to complete this work which he has begun. As I previously pointed out to you, while many possibly view these two statements within verses 12 and 13 as though they are contradictive statements, they actually are complementary statements, one of the other. And we began our study of these two verses by considering last week Paul's statement when he says in verse 12, he lays out the expectation of this salvation. Wherefore, my beloved... As ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Paul addressed these believers as my beloved due to the continued obedience in the gospel that it bound the hearts of God's people together in a godly love. Paul's statement that these believers had always obeyed is not a statement of perfection, as I said last week, but it's a statement explaining that there was a pattern of obedience within the life of the Philippian believers. And in the opening of this epistle, Paul had commented on this thankfulness for the believers at Philippi. And in verse 5, he referred to their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now as a testimony to their faithfulness to the gospel, which produced a continued fellowship. Now, I, I want to stop and pause here for just a moment. I did not mention this last week in the same uh, in the same respect, I want to mention it. We dealt with this actually in our discipleship class, our theology class on Tuesday night, that I find it quite odd. Even as Paul says here, I, in chapter 1, verse 3, he speaks about how he thanked God upon every remembrance of these Philippian believers. Verse 5, he goes on to explain why. Because of their continued fellowship in the gospel. And, and, he, and he goes on to even talk about how that he should think of them in this regard because of these matters, because they were demonstrating, exhibiting faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, and, and they fellowshiped in the gospel of Jesus Christ in every aspect of the word. And so, let me, let me submit this to you for consideration. You know, when a, a child is, is born into your family or has been born into your family, into the world, there is something that we expect to take place. We expect him to cry during church service. We expect when a child is born for something to take place. What do we expect to take place? Growth. We expect a child to grow. We don't expect a baby to stay a baby forever. Now, unfortunately, some people seem to do that and more commonly today than generations prior. But we don't expect for infants to remain infants. We expect there to be growth. In fact, if there is not growth, it brings tremendous concern. It brings tremendous 
uh, care concerning that matter and we begin to question what is wrong. Something is terribly wrong here as to why my child has not matured, why my child has not physically grown, why they've not developed as would normally be expected. But isn't it kind of somewhat strange that when it comes to spiritual growth, we kind of think the opposite? It's as though in so many cases... When someone does spiritually mature and grow, it's like, oh, they are such a phenomenal follower of Christ. No, that is normal Christianity. And we've somewhat flipped the table, so to speak, in relation to spiritual growth as though we expect people to not grow spiritually rather than being concerned when they don't. So this expectation of salvation is that there is a continued obedience to Christ and the Word of God and a knowledge of Christ and a desire to know Christ and to grow in the faith. Paul further exhorted and complimented the Philippians that their obedience was not based on others watching them or what others thought of them, but their faithfulness was to be to the Lord in His truth, and it was. He says, "Ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. That's a phenomenal statement here in relation to what I even just said. Paul is saying, okay, yes, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. Yes, I know that, you know that. And your obedience to the gospel and your obedience to Christ has never been based on my presence. It's not about me seeing you do right. It's not about me acknowledging that you're doing right. It's not about me acknowledging that you have a desire to know Christ or that you're growing in Christ, your obedience is consistent whether or not I am here. It makes no difference. By the way, spiritual maturity can definitely be seen in this respect that if your maturity is only present around certain people or a certain group or a certain person, then that is evidence of immaturity, not maturity, as far as spiritual maturity goes. Two, the responsibility of this salvation, we saw last week in the latter part of verse 12, he said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This command for the believers to work out your own salvation is a command based on the provision of God's completed work in Christ. In 2 Peter 1, 1 through 8, we see this to be true, and we won't read all those verses again, but Peter in that passage exhorted believers to add to their faith. Faith is the foundation, and it is as we live out this faith that our life then bears fruit in the knowledge of Christ, Peter goes on to explain, and manifests the fruit of knowing Christ. So the fruit is actually in the knowledge of Christ, but the knowledge of Christ is what brings forth all of these fruits that are mentioned or evidences that we build upon the faith as instructed in Second Peter's, or Peter's second epistle. Paul states that we are to work out this salvation with fear and trembling. And again, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, we know that John states that perfect love casteth out fear, and there's no fear of judgment or torment because we have this love of God. So when he says fear and trembling, we know he's not saying that we work out this salvation as though we're scared of what God's going to do or what he's not going to do. No, we have a heavenly Father in Christ that loves us, and he's committed to conform us to the image of his Son. But we must recognize because of this this work is so tremendous and significant, a salvific work, that we are to approach it carefully and cautiously, sincerely, seriously, considering the gravity of what this salvific work is. 
So to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling is to acknowledge the seriousness of this salvific work which God has performed in us and to recognize the gravity of our responsibility to submit to the Lord's continued work in our lives. So as we continue our study of this portion of Paul's epistle, we're going to be looking at verse 13 this morning. We will give our attention to this verse. I wanted to again review or remind you of verse 12, what we've discovered there as we continue in verse 13. Within this verse, Paul lays out the basis for the exhortation which he had given in verse 12, which we've just read. In other words, we are commanded to work out our salvation with the spirit of sincerity and understanding in which we recognize the gravity of the responsibility to which we have been called in verse 12. And yet, it is in verse 13 that we are given the basis and the foundation upon which this command in verse 12 is constructed. For it is God, verse 13, which worketh in you, both to will and to do, of his good pleasure. So we'll spend our time this morning examining this foundation in verse 13, upon which the command of verse 12 is founded. Let's look at number three. We've seen the expectation of this salvation, the responsibility of this salvation. The expectation is that you work out with, and, and then the, of course the responsibility, or the responsibilities that we work out uh, with fear and trembling. The expectation is that the obedience is continued, not based on anyone else's observation, but just unto the Lord and the Lord alone. And then third, we see the confidence of this salvation. Notice verse 13 again, the first portion of the verse. For it is God which worketh in you. I don't know of more comforting words that could possibly follow the command of verse 12. Consider this for a moment. Paul says, verse 12, Wherefore, because of the supreme example of Jesus, because of his superior humility and his spirit that now dwells in you as followers of Christ, all based on his person and his work. My beloved, which we dealt with that, as ye have always obeyed, not again perfection, but consistency and faithfulness, a pattern in their life, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Listen to this charge. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Boy, if verse 13 didn't follow that command, that would leave us in quite a situation. Do you not agree? But verse 13 is the basis for the command that was given in verse 12. For it is God which worketh in you. If we take seriously the command in verse 12 to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, then we surely also deeply desire to know and understand both the foundation and the power by which such a command can be fulfilled. Let me say to you like this for a moment. If verse 12 is the command that is given without verse 13 providing the understanding and explanation of the manner, the power, and the ability for this command to be fulfilled, then we have already failed. For we can never work out this salvation apart from God working in us. So in this verse, Paul provides the explanation or basis for which he has made such a 
tremendous demand. And it's in this first part of verse 13 that we understand how we can face such a demand to work out our salvation. As I've repeatedly stated, we are not commanded to work on this salvation. We're not commanded to work for this salvation. We're not commanded to work toward this salvation. We're not commanded to work at this salvation. He says, work out. And that is so important. He's not saying work for salvation because God is working in you. Work toward salvation because God is working in you. Work at salvation because God is working in you. Work on salvation because God is working. No, work out. Listen to the freedom and how that relieves from our shoulders an unbearable weight and responsibility. Even if he said work at because God is working in, that's still putting a lot of weight on us. Work toward because God works in, that's still a lot of weight on us. Work for, that's a tremendous amount of weight on us. But he says work out because God is working in. That's simply saying get out of the way of what God is doing. (laughs) Understand your responsibility. Christ submitted himself in superior humility even unto the death of the cross. And Christ was our example. Peter said that we also should follow and we will suffer following in his steps. Jesus himself said, did he not to his disciples? Except a man deny himself, take up his cross. If a man is going to be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He has to die. He has to submit. He has to surrender himself to the purpose and will of the Father. It is in this verse, verse 13, that we truly find the confidence to do exactly what has been demanded and commanded and required of us as followers of Christ. For it is God which worketh in you. Romans 12, 1 through 3, and you might want to turn to these passages. I will not have them up for you. I think sometimes you can get a little lazy in looking in your scripture or looking in the, in the Word of God. And if you're using electronically the scriptures, how easy is that to turn there? So... Romans 12, 1 through 3, I beseech you, Paul writes, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And again, reasonable means genuine here. Service means ministry of worship. It's our worship to God. Verse 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Every man here, of course, is speaking to believers. Obviously, this text is speaking to believers. And Paul is saying here that we are to, by God's mercy, present our bodies a living sacrifice, It's to be holy, acceptable, pleasing unto God. This is our genuine worship unto him, Paul is saying. This is genuine worship, that we submit ourselves to him. But then he says, be not conformed to this world. Now, again, I submit to you that as a person living in this world, it is extremely easy to be conformed by this world and what takes place, even within our churches, let's just say. But he says, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. How are we transformed? 
By the renewing of our mind. How is our mind renewed? It's the mind of Christ that we now have that's been given unto us. You cannot put within yourself the mind of Christ. But in salvation, God has instilled the mind of Christ in you by the abiding presence of the Spirit of God dwelling in you. So what is the answer to not being conformed? By the renewing of our mind, presenting our bodies as believers, submitting this wicked, sinful body in which I live unto God as a holy, acceptable offering, sacrifice unto Him, which demonstrates how much so I really see His worth. Because genuine worship, it goes back to the word worth-ship, and it, it is intimating this idea that we see something or someone that is worthy of us bowing to, worthy of us submitting ourselves unto that authority. And so when he says, your reasonable service, this is genuine worship. And so really, let me just pause here for a moment. I believe this is very important. And this has everything to do with what Paul is talking about in Romans and Philippians. That we are to work out, for it is God that worketh in. But here's the reality of as believers in Jesus Christ. The measure of our submission demonstrates how much so we acknowledge God's worth of our submission. We can say all we want, oh, we love God. Oh, I would die for the Lord Jesus. I've said many years ago as a young man, as a young preacher, I said, you would not die for a Christ you will not live for. And the fact of the matter is that the measure of our submission is the measure of our acknowledgement of God's worth. This is very practical, isn't it? But it's truth. And it's God that is working this in us. 1 Corinthians 12, 4-6, Paul says, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. There are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. He works all these things in all His people, is what's being stated here. 1 Corinthians 15, 9-10. For I am least of the apostles, Paul wrote, that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Did you hear what Paul just said? Oh, I labored more than everyone, but here's what I recognize. It wasn't me laboring. It was the grace of God, the goodness of God. It was Christ in me that was accomplishing this. Ephesians 2.10 For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And that when it says we should, it's not saying, well, this is what, this is how it should be. No, He's saying that we would walk in these truths. Notice it says God before ordained. That means it's going to happen. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will. Wait a minute. 
Didn't we just read that Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10? Where it is God, or we're told that uh, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in. And now listen to Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now the God of peace that brought again the dead from our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, verse 21, make you perfect in every good work to do his will. Working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you see what Paul just said, or the writer of Hebrews just said? This God make you perfect in every good work to do his will. But then he explains it's he, it is he that is working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. These verses, along with many others, clearly reveal that God is faithfully working His purpose and plan in us. So while God has given us the stewardship of cautiously and carefully working out this salvation, we have confidence that it is God who is the author of this work, and it is God who will perfect this work, as the writer of Hebrews stated in Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. There could be no greater confidence in the life of the child of God than to know that the God who makes the demands for his children to work out this salvation is the same God who not only is doing the work, but is also committed to perfect this work of salvation within his children. Do I have a responsibility? We've already seen that, absolutely. What is the responsibility? To work out. Not work for, toward, on, but to work out. So what does that mean? It means that the work that God is doing within, for it is God which worketh in you to flesh out the work that is worked in by God. And here's the beauty of it. As a believer in Jesus Christ, there is not one of us who could ever perfect this work. No matter how sanctified we may become in this life, no matter how consecrated we may be unto God, no matter how submitted we may live our lives unto the Father, the truth of the matter is we will always fall short of this command of working out in its fullness this salvation. So aren't you thankful there is such a tremendous confidence which we have been given, and here it is. Oh, the responsibility is real. This does not mean we shirk the responsibility. Again, I say to you this truth. God will conform you to the image of his son. The question is this. Is it going to be a miserable life in the process, or is it going to be a joyful life in the process? Because he's going to do the work all the same. So we are, to, we are responsible to work out. But here is the confidence of this work. And the confidence of even this command. For it is God. Which worketh in you. How many people are attempting, are attempting today to work out something that's never been worked in? And what a disaster that results in. 
But when we are submitted to Christ and His work and His will and His word, His spirit within us, then it's a beautiful, beautiful work that God is accomplishing and performing in the life of His children. Fourth, the last part of verse 13, we see the purpose of this salvation. So, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Seriously, cautiously, carefully demonstrating, submitting to the Spirit of God working within us. Here's the confidence, for it is God. It is God that's doing this work in you. But then what is the purpose? Verse 13, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. From the previous statement coupled with the latter part of this verse, we conclude that there is a reason as to why, although God has called us to stewardship of this salvific work which He has begun, there is a reason as to why God is the one who has purposed to perfect this work in us. Once again, I point your attention to Hebrews. Looking unto Jesus, Hebrews 12, 2, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Just as we see Jesus being the originator and perfecter of this faith, as stated in Hebrews, Paul also has already mentioned this truth in the first chapter of the, his epistle to the Philippians. Philippians 1.6. Being confident. Notice the word. Confident. What is our confidence? Work out the salvation with fear and trembling. What is the confidence? For it is God which worketh in you. In Philippians 1.6, Paul's already established this truth. Being confident of this very thing. That he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul is saying in Philippians 1.6. He just said in verse 5, did he not compliment them how they've been faithful and they are continuing in this work, obedient unto God? And then in verse 6, oh, by the way, I'm thankful to testify this of you. I'm thankful to see this in your life. But my confidence is not that you will be faithful. My confidence is in the faithfulness of he who has called you to this salvation. Being confident of this very thing that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Paul again reminds us of the truth that although God has called us to live out his work, he does not leave the outcome of this eternal work to man. Look, and I am eternally grateful for that, as you also should be. God does not say, here, I'm going to save you, I'm going to deliver you out of hell and condemnation and the lake of fire, I'm going to... So Paul, Paul reminds us 
of the truth that God is committed and faithful to perform, to perfect this work which he has begun. And he says here again in, in Ephesians 3, 8 through 12, Unto me, whom less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Did you hear what Paul said? He didn't say, oh, we have boldness and confidence because we remain faithful. By the way, we have boldness and confidence and access by the faith, or might we say, by the faithfulness of him. For it is God who is faithful, Christ who is faithful in accomplishing this work. God has purpose to complete or perfect this work of grace which he has begun in every one of us who have been redeemed. The call of God for us to live out the truth of this great salvation is not a call to finish what he has begun, but rather is a call to submit to him as he continues the work of sanctification within our lives unto his glory. We as God's people are called by God to acknowledge the gravity of this great work which he has begun, considering he who is the supreme, superior example, lest we become faint as the Scriptures warn. Consider him which endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye become wearied and faint in your own minds. So we are to consider him the weight and the gravity of this supreme, superior humility unto the Father, even unto the death of the cross, which he did not deserve. So we are to recognize the gravity of this salvific work that God has accomplished, performed in us through his Son. But also recognizing that it is he who is faithful to continue. It is he who has predetermined to perfect within each of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, this work of salvation. So work out this salvation that God has worked in you, that His glory might be manifested in and through you, for it is in and through His church that God is determined to manifest and receive glory. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, Now unto Him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh, not for us, that worketh in us. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages. World without end. Amen. Paul says, that it is in the church that God has determined through Jesus Christ to receive glory throughout all ages, world without end. Do you think for one moment that God is going to be so lackadaisical as to leave that up to us? 
His glory will be revealed through his church. And here's the reality. It has nothing to do with you and me. It has to do with the work he is accomplishing in you and me. For God is faithful. Oh, you have a responsibility. Submit to the Lord. That's the responsibility. Fleshing out that which God has worked in. Living in obedience and submission to the Lord, to his truth, to his word. Constantly being reminded of the superior example of Christ and humbling himself. And it's through this means that God is conforming us to the image of his Son and the glory of God the Father is being revealed in us through Jesus Christ. His body, his church, those he has redeemed, world without end. Amen. May God receive the glory and honor due to his name. And every one of us in here would say to that, Amen. So let's just consider this. May God receive the glory and the honor. May our Lord Jesus Christ receive the exaltation within His church that He deserves. That which is due unto His name. Amen. But then the responsibility falls on us to ensure that every moment of our lives we are consciously, purposefully, intentionally committed to submitting ourselves to God the Father, to His truth, to His Spirit, to His Word within our lives, that that glory be demonstrated and manifested through us. To which we also should say, Amen. Let's stand together. Father, thank You for Your Word and for these wonderful truths of the confidence that we have in You, the One who is the author, the Uh, progenerator and the one who's the perfecter of this faith. Uh, You are faithful to yourself. You are faithful to your purposes. And we just rejoice that we receive the benefits of such faithfulness. And Lord, as you would conform us to the image of your Son, as you would work this salvation in and through us continually, as we are positionally understanding the sanctification we have received in Jesus, may we be aware of the your purpose in continuing to manifest this sanctification practically in our lives. And so, Father, as Christ has set this supreme example before us, may we as well be aware of the necessity to submit ourselves to you, for you are worthy of all glory, of all honor, of all praise. You are worthy of our lives being submitted unto you. You are worthy of our obedience. You are worthy that we would live committed, intentional, purposeful lives submitted unto your word, unto the spirit of God dwelling within, that you might be glorified in and through all that is said and done in the time that you've granted us. So Father, we want to acknowledge with our lips, with our mouth, with the air that you have filled our lungs with that you are God alone. You are worthy of our praise and adoration. But Father, may this truth be acknowledged within our minds and hearts as we not only join together, but as we would leave this place and go out into a world that is in spiritual darkness and chaos. And may we have committed lives unto your glory and to your honor. In the fellowship of the gospel in which you have placed us, and working out that which you have worked in through our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Men are going to receive the offering.
Cambodian work in the church and the children's home there in Cambodia, and as well, of course, Hunger Fight, which that's coming up this Saturday. This Saturday is our, is our food distribution, so, of course, we partner with Grace and Redeemer. And so, uh, if you can, who's planning to be here Saturday? Can I get a show so I kind of have an idea of who's coming? One, two, three. Are you going to be here, Richard, or not? Okay. Okay. Well, yeah, but I didn't, if I don't see, I don't know. So, okay, so Richard. Okay, one, two, three, four. Okay, so we'll have four or five or so. And then, of course, we'll have people from Grace and Redeemer, I'm sure, as well. So um, please continue to pray. Don't forget the food out front, the list that we have for the additional food that's needed. So if you will, please keep that in mind as well. All right. Oh, remember the SEALs. The SEALs are in Tampa this weekend. Um, They're out of town. That's why they're not with us. But continue to pray for those folks that are away from us and and those who are out of town. Um, Please remember them. And and as well, the prayer request already made. And those who are on our prayer list, please remember to lift each other up before the Lord.